All right, everybody, it is time for another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. But before we dive in to our awesome, awesome guest and conversation today, I want to remind you guys of two things. And the first one is that if you go to Crypto101insider.com, you can join our private community. Here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks. We also have uh, Crypto 101 University. Uh, where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy-to-understand way. Uh, and we have a weekly newsletter that goes out and quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to Crypto101Insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, It took 11 months of our lives to write, and we're calling it Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. We walk you through this fascinating world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and it's part history book, it's part instructional guide, and it's going to really show you guys why cryptocurrencies are globally disruptive and how they're going to actually change in real life and in real terms the way that we buy and sell and even live. We include a bunch of how-tos on getting started with your first exchanges. Uh, We give you tips on how to safely buy and sell and store cryptocurrencies, as well as how do we evaluate potentially good cryptocurrencies. And the best part of the book is that we're giving it away for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping and handling. So go to CryptoRevolution.com and pick up your copy today. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys are having a fantastic morning, noon, or night, wherever you guys are in the world. You're in the right place because we are joined today by a crypto uh, VC, a venture capitalist from Interplay, Brett Palatiello, a partner at Interplay. We're going to introduce him and bring him on the show in just a couple minutes um, to talk everything markets, investing, Uh, But again, as always, nothing that you hear on the show is investment advice or financial advice. Um, But before we bring him on, uh, Aaron, how are you doing, sir? I feel great. It is an overcast day here in Texas at the end of August, which uh, just shows you the world's a little bit backwards still. But that's when I like to thrive, you know, (laughs) and I love really having VCs on this podcast because even though the V and VC stands for venture, to me, it, it means vision. Because to be in venture capital, you have to have a vision of what the future is going to be. You can't look outside and be sad that it's a cloudy day. You have to know that there's going to be sunshine coming out the other end Mm. uh, a little bit later. And that's what you're building for. During the storms, you're building for that next spring. So I'm really, really excited. Brett, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Really excited to, uh, to be here. Yeah. And just before the show, we were kind of, you know, catching up and uh, you kind of made a a funny little aside that, you know, back in, you know, you're from a traditional markets background back then, you know, the market's down a percent or two people are freaking out. Why is the world ending? And and one or 2% in crypto is like, holy smokes, we're kicking back on the beach with a Mai Tai. It's it's calm as ever, but you know, we, we're used to 15% daily swings and stuff. So tell us a little bit about your traditional markets background. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my background before crypto, uh, I was a portfolio manager at a multi-strap fund. Uh, I 
traded probably everything under the sun. Uh, I did stat arb, uh, traded market neutral, long short equity strategies, uh, managed future strategies. Then I became a, a partner at uh, a, a managed futures fund where I launched to manage a systematic macro fund. And I had always dabbled in crypto, right? You know, kept my toes, uh, you know, in in the space. But uh, it was during that period where I left. I went on, you know, quasi sabbatical, quasi consulting for friends and ex clients of mine. Uh, that I started investing heavily, in my own personal capital, friends, family, ex clients, money in uh, in crypto. And then over time, you just started, uh, you know, really getting into the principles of the space, what it really stands for. And uh, I started consulting for uh, a gaming company and a stablecoin protocol. My background's in economics. I've published uh, a, a more traditional academic paper. So it was a natural fit for me to, uh, you know, apply my skill set to the space and super exciting. You know, I, I was in the traditional finance space for a while and it's hyper competitive, uh, but things are relatively stagnant, not a lot happening. And once I started getting into crypto, I just kept getting deeper and deeper into you know all the little nuances and things to, that could be solved. So really excited to be in the space. Uh, you know, super happy I was introduced to it by uh, one of my buddies, and uh, you know, definitely not looking back. So definitely a natural transition for your skill set. But what about your trading strategies that you used over there? Were you able to just simply copy and paste those strategies into some new crypto pairings? Or did you notice you had to adjust for a lot for the way the crypto markets move differently? Uh, yeah, you definitely have to make an adjustment. Uh, a lot of the risk uh, parameters that you would use in traditional finance, they simply break when applied to crypto, right? Like the assumptions of normal distributions and how the correlations between assets move. So it's definitely much different uh, from that perspective. The parameters and, and the outputs are much less trustworthy. So you needed to have uh, much more discretion over, you know, like in, in traditional markets, you have these structures, right? You have value, you have momentum. So groups of stocks, for example, are reliably moved together in certain environments. And we know that over, you know, 100 years of, of studying this stuff. In crypto, a lot of that didn't exist. Uh, some of it has come to fruition now. Uh, for example, you know, there's a certain amount of movement in in Polygon uh, dApps, right? They're native tokens, and gaming uh, gaming protocols will move together. So we're starting to see some groupings in that way, but it's not nearly as clean as as it is in traditional markets. So it's it's quite tricky. Yeah, and you wouldn't have a thirty percent VC unlock. In one day, in a traditional market, that all gets dumped. Yeah, it's 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 different, and a lot of the things you know in terms. Of, there's also much much more, and they call it memetics. And there's a lot more sentiment driven movements in crypto uh, than than in uh, traditional markets. Uh, you know, you can say things overreact or underreact, or there's drift in asset in traditional asset prices, but in crypto. You know, you'll see somebody tweet about something, and then all of a sudden it'll you know explode a couple hundred percent or something like that, and and that sometimes happens in traditional markets, but it's more muted. You know, it's like a five percent or a ten percent jump. So you have to be able to adapt to to those changes in sentiment much more than than in traditional markets. Yeah. So so is interplay. Um, as a VC, are you guys just making you know equity bets? Are you guys you know you know kind of looking at you know the three to five year or maybe the 10 to 20 year time horizon are you guys 
taking tokens as part of the deal? You know, what what are some of these deals looking like? Yeah, so a, a little bit about Interplay, just to you know, so you can round things out. Um, so Interplay, we have service companies, and then we have our, our capital companies. So our service companies are you know legal, marketing, accounting. Uh, these services are available to the companies that we invest in. They employ you know over 500 people and you know serve. I, I think it's about 10% of all venture-backed companies in the U.S. So it's a very very big ecosystem that's available to to the portfolio companies. And then we have the capital side, which is we have a foundry, which basically takes ideas, gets them off the ground. We have an incubator, which is a step above that. We have the venture capital arm, which they're they're generalists but focus more on on Web two tech, the blockchain fund, and a family office, which manages friends, family, partners, capital, doing doing a number of different things. So the blockchain fund, uh, the way we set it up is a multi-strategy fund. Uh, so we're going to be investing in early stage tokens, liquid tokens, DAOs. We're going to be investing in other funds. So we have a very broad mandate. Uh, the reason we did that is the opportunities in the space are definitely, you know, how to capture certain opportunities depends on specific things. So uh, for example, you know, instead of equity, uh, we can take early stage tokens if more of the value accrual goes to the tokens, right? So it's a very different business model and investment model than than traditional VCs have to have to deal with. So, but a big portion of that will be in traditional equity, and and we can get into you know why I think most of the value is going to end up accruing to the equity portion. It's my view on tokens, which uh, you know, for me, needs to exist for a reason. But uh, we can get into that, you know, if you'd like. Yeah, I think that's a great place to go next. You know, you've got an amazing ecosystem over there with so many different layers to take something from its infancy to its exit in every step of the way. But let's yeah. talk about why you think equity is really where the value is going to accrue versus the tokens. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, most uh, protocols or applications probably don't need a token. And it's really, really, really hard to drive real value to the token. Um, applications, so I wrote a paper on this and it revolves around, you know, what is decentralization and, you know, it's for it's two different things. So in terms of tokens, one is the token is critical to the functioning of the protocol or the application, right? If you remove the token from it, it no longer works. So in that case, you can see how a significant amount of value can accrue to the token, uh, whether it be in demand for the product or in cash flows uh, via ownership. And then the other side is if there's no real value accrual, then basically it's a way to take your protocol or application public. Right. So that can be good in terms of uh, some people don't have access to early capital, which is great. But it also is sort of a headache, right? A lot of people want to decentralize before they get product market fit. So you're really having to deal with a lot of the inefficiencies of decentralized governance before your product even understands what it is or, you know, the problem it's solving. And, you know, so. Realistically, I think a lot of people uh, aren't thinking through exactly how value is going to accrue to the token, and you know we're not necessarily so much interested in in getting in early at a, a, a token discount and then dumping on the on retail. Uh, we're more interested in investing in things that can generate substantial amount of either value in terms of demand because it's a great product, or in terms of cash flows, let's say via fees. Mm-hmm. Um, that flow through through the token. 
Yeah, yeah. What sort of companies are you investing in? Are, are these mostly exchanges or wallets or you know, yeah. any other kind of things? Yeah. So we're going to be investing in everything. And, and the reason I, I, I always say it's, you know, you guys have been in it longer than I have, but, you know, for the amount of time I've been in it, you know, the space has grow, grown exponentially. But you can still see how everything connects, right? You know, we still have an understanding of, you know, what needs to get get built in order for this to go mainstream. We can see how, you know, DEXs and borrowing and lending platforms all connect with each other. Um, so we still have a broad overview of how the space looks. And also we have a broad overview of how we think it's going to go mainstream if it does go mainstream. So, uh, you know, I can get into the specific things that that we're interested in, the, the specific verticals. But, you know, one thing I would like to mention is my approach is I have a, a view of how I think this all works out. Um, you know, the, you call it our thesis, uh, but mine's not so rigid as to, you know, shutting out good founders or good ideas simply because they don't fit in with our thesis. I think the best way to go about it is to have a good understanding of how you see everything playing out. And then you let very talented founders dictate the specifics of how that's going to work out. And, and if they, the tide seems to be moving against your thesis, then you need to be able to adapt to that and understand, you know, what's coming on the horizon. Like for example, DeFi, right. You know, for, for uh, people uh, in 2017, for example, and you know you couldn't really see how all this DeFi would play out. Uh, you needed to adapt, and you need to understand how that fits in with your view of the world. That makes a lot of sense. Um, very wise on your part to not exclude things just because they don't fit into this tiny little box that makes sense today, but may not tomorrow. Yeah. Um, definitely, being agile is the way to survival uh, throughout human history. So it makes yeah. sense to structure your stuff that way. What are some of the market sectors that excite you the most today that you have a lot of focus on? And paint us a picture of where you think they're going to be. Yeah. So one specifically, uh, it, they call it Web 2.5. And, and it's, I think it's very interesting because I think or we think most of the crypto native people are in the space, right? There's only a certain amount of money that can swap hands between all of us. So the next stage of, of consumers that are going to go on the network, those people are on the fringes and those people are, are a little bit daunted by crypto, managing your own keys, you know, going around to these different applications. And you know, the web is a relatively safe place. But even myself, when I go to different applications, you got to worry about what you're going to click, you know, all these different things. So for me, I think that the next wave of adoption is going to occur without people even knowing that they're adopting it. For example, you know, games, uh, instead of having people already have a wallet, you can sign up for a game, you know, in the normal way that that you would usually, but on the backside, they create a wallet for you. And everything that you create in the game is an NFT. You know, if you move money, it goes into your wallet and it's custodied by, you know, some some company. And that way, you know, you're sort of already onboarded. So from there, it's a matter of, oh, well, I'm discovering now that I have these NFTs or, you know, I know, you know, there's something in the game that tells me I can, you know, participate in something else if I have these assets. So it's a much easier way to get people onboarded. I think there's a big friction there. And I think taking Web 2.5 seriously would would allow, you know, even technologically savvy people that that don't want to manage their own keys allow them to participate in the ecosystems and move around DeFi and stuff like that. I 
generally think infrastructure is still needed. Our view is that eventually blockchains, NFTs, all these different uh, technologies are going to be abstracted away from the user. And they're just going to be the rails upon which all types of value and things that you own settle. So, uh, for example, you know, one thing we're super interested in is anybody who can uh, make a protocol that allows blockchains to communicate with each other. Uh, we think that's super interesting. Uh, you know, bridges have had, they have their own centralized sources of risk. But if we can, we have seen people that are using messaging across chains to be able to more effectively move assets. Um, so that's, again, that's to us something that's very interesting. Gaming, we find interesting, but we think it needs to pivot. So for gaming, we think the most optimal approach for now is to use blockchain and NFTs as tools to make games fun, right? Or more fun. The hardest part of making a game is making it fun in general. It's even harder to try and build it around some nascent technology. So we think that the people that end up succeeding at it at least initially, um, are going to be the ones that use blockchains and NFTs to enhance the experience or uh, enable players to do something they couldn't do before. There's a lot of distrust uh, in the gaming community, and those are people that are going to need to be onboarded uh, into Web3 games. And they're a little bit distrustful of the big gaming studios in terms of issuing NFTs. They look at it as a power grab. So if they're able to integrate it into a game that makes it inherently better, that's one of the ways I, I can see the space moving forward. Now, I've got kind of the inverse question. Uh, yes. what, <laughs> what is this, the, the vertical or the sector that you're most bearish on that maybe people are uh, still excited about in, in, the, in the majority? Yeah, who's uh, not going to make it? Yeah, who's dead man walking here? I think play to earn gaming is a really hard sell. Um, mm. I think it's very hard. It's, you know, I mean, the tokenomics just can't really work. Uh, and it's not fun. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, gaming shouldn't really be that cyclical, right? People have fun playing games, regardless of how the economy is doing, how any of that, any of that's doing. So, you know, if you take some of these play to earn games, what you're seeing is that it doesn't necessarily make things fun. <laughs> it's just another form of giving people money. Unfortunately, if tokens don't have any value, it ultimately gets subsidized by somebody, right? So if, if a token's issued at 100 bucks and there's really no value accrual to it, and it's going to ultimately go to zero, um, there's two people that can subsidize that yield in favor of early adopters uh, who dump on them. And those are speculators or the gamers themselves who hold these tokens. So they end up subsidizing the game. And if that's the only reason they play the game and they're basically all just losing money from 100 to zero, that's a terrible way to bootstrap a gaming community, which is supposed to be fun and close. So I'm not, uh, I'm not super bullish on, on play to earn gaming. Uh, I think it needs to go back to his roots to, to be fun. And if we're going to financialize the games, it needs to uh, be in a way that adds value to you know the entertainment. So play to earn gaming. These are great insights um, that you're giving us here from, you know, incentivize incentivization of tokens and where the value accruals are going. These are a, a lot of questions that people don't really ask themselves. They just see number going up or a cool idea and say, okay, I'm going to invest in it. And that's it. Yeah. Can you walk us through maybe some due diligence, best practices? 
Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recording, Recordings, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And tell us what questions as investors we should be asking before cutting a check or buying a token. Um, so, in terms of tokens specifically, there's two ways you can. Uh, again, you can accrue value to the token. One is via organic demand for, you know, think of Ethereum, right? In order to transact on Ethereum, you need to have Ethereum. So the more people use Ethereum, assuming, let's say, gas costs stay the same, there's going to be more demand for that token, right? So even if necessarily, even let's say you don't get a staking yield, there's still going to be demand for that token. The staking yield is just an enhancement of that to be able to protect the network. But for applications, uh, there's a few things. One is governance, right? I'm more skeptical of governance abilities. So I actually spoke with with some people at, at larger institutions, uh, banking institutions, and they were asking, you know, how can we get involved in DeFi without actually having to, you know, get get on the ground floor and creating apps ourselves? Uh, and I said, just buy Uniswap tokens or, or buy you know some of these larger DeFi protocols tokens and have a say in governance. Right. So that's a potential way you can see value accruing to the token, uh, similar to Curve, right? So Curve, 
they're it's not to me it's not necessarily the tokenomics that are that are great it's that a they have a very good product stablecoin swaps are are very important to the ecosystem and on top of that you have uh stablecoin issuers who drive demand for the token because they want to say in governance and how much liquidity gets provided to that token. Um, so again, a, a lot of that flows through from having a good protocol or application that people need or want to use. The tokenomics flows out from that. And then the other is purely, you know, fees or a claim to to some money, right? A claim to the treasury. Uh, similar to how you would value a stock or anything like that. You know, how much do you think your claim to the earnings or the cash flow or the the assets on hand of that protocol is yours. So is there any tools that you use to like measure stuff like that? uh, Yeah. So, I mean, you can see, you know, you can go on DeFi Llama, for example, or you can go on... There's Token Terminal. Yeah, Coindex. There's Token Terminal. And for me, and people are starting to come around to this now, the idea of a real yield... So there's nominal yield and then the real yield. So the nominal yield is, let's say you get you know 5% of, from fees, right? That's real business revenue. And then you have an additional 5% from just pure inflationary tokens, right? So for me, it's more important to get that 5% than it is necessarily to get that additional 5% in terms of an inflationary token, because ultimately it can just offset um, you know, all of the, the earnings you, you, you have because it can go, go down, you know, uh, however much uh, over the holding period. So essentially, you're just creating a token for people to dump. And that's why you see mercenary capital, people bouncing around DeFi protocols and, and things like that. So you're seeing them bootstrapping these ecosystems well. It's just that it's not sustainable, right? So what's ultimately sustainable? People using it, generating fees, uh, you know, like GMX, for example, that's something people want to use and people get a substantial amount of fees from participating in GMX as opposed to them just purely issuing some token that, that you know, uh, yield farmers just dump, you know, in the short term. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, getting rid of the subsidy model, if you will. And the subsidies are never sustainable. We know that. They're, they're subsidized by somebody all the time, right? Whether it's in money or it's in time, right? In Plato and if you don't know, and if you don't know where the yield comes from, surprise, you're the yield. You're the yield. And it's, you know, it's, it's very simple. So, uh, so yeah, those are the two frameworks. I, I think of it, I think of it as either a commodity or I think of it as equity. Um, and the equity is traditional, you know, how much cash or what claim to cash do I have or assets? And then the other is, okay, you know, people need this in order to participate in something. And, you know, how much traction is that something going to get? Um, you know, think of it as oil, for example. Yeah. Now, now one of the other things that, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Interplay, you know, they're an older company, right? You guys have something like 30 funds. And uh, this is now just the the first launch of a blockchain related fund. Did I get that right? So we so we don't have thirty funds. So we have three in the venture capital arm, uh, three in the VC arm, and then we have our blockchain fund, and then we have the family office. Um, thirty funds is a lot, but the reason we started the blockchain fund uh, in my hiring was we had a tremendous amount of deal flow from crypto blockchain founders and the VC fund made investments uh, early. You know, they invested in, in Ethereum, they invested in Bitcoin, they invested in Coinbase's Series A, uh, Founders Shield, uh, a Bitcoin miner. So it was a matter of, of getting me, somebody who's dedicated to that space. 
into into interplay. So it was just a matter of formalizing things that have that were already coming across interplay's desk um, and being able to take advantage of them. Makes a lot of sense, and that's the agility we talked about earlier on display right there. As, as you see this deal flow come across your desk, what are some of the green flags you look for? We, we talked about the tokenomic structures already, yeah. but just in terms of building for the future, what are some things that really get you excited that you say, this is going to be a core component of the internet usage in you know five to 10 years from now versus some of the things that come across your desk that you say, I don't know if this has any legs you know, for even two years. Yeah. So one of the green flags that that I look for is crypto nativity. And, and, you know, I don't like to exclude, you know, Web2 developers. They're tremendous. And we have a, you know, Web 2.5 focus, which sort of bridges all of that. Uh, but crypto nativity is, is super important to me because I think those people have a better understanding of the ecosystem and what needs to get built and what it actually means to say issue a token versus not issuing a token, at least more recently, you know, in the past. You definitely saw people just issuing tokens as a way to, to cash out early. Um, so crypto nativity is, is something that I find really important. And also people that have already built something um, is super important to me, uh, particularly, you know, on on some of these newer programming languages, because there is a gap between, uh, you know, the Web 2 developers and the Web 3 developers. And there's a bunch of groups like MacroDAO, for example, is one of them. They're trying to bridge those people together. Um, so having people that have experience with the security of creating applications and protocols is super, super important to me. And another thing is, they, and it's back to our thing about tokens, is they really are thinking about, because these are earlier stage companies, they're more thinking about product market fit than they are about monetizing the, the network via token. So, you know, you'll hear conversations in terms of, oh, this is what we're building. And then I'll ask, oh, are you thinking about decentralizing and issuing a token? And they say, maybe down the line, we'll, we'll do that. Um, but there's no real reason for us to have a token in our protocol until we decide to essentially open it up to the community to, to manage and operate and things like that. But in order for it to be sustainable, you have to find product market fit first. So teams that are really focused on creating something that that is going to be used and needs to happen in, in the space in order to get mainstream adoption is, is something I definitely look for. In terms of, if, of red flags, people that don't know why they're using this technology in the first place. You know, why does this need to be on a blockchain? Why does this need an NFT? Why does this need a token? Those are all things I think need to be thoroughly thought through. Because otherwise, you know, you're just using a less efficient way of, of you know, creating X, for example. If you're going to be... One thing that really bugs me is when people say they're a decentralized X and they're not really decentralized, or at least they haven't thought through what that means to be decentralized. Uh, and again, I wrote a paper on this and it's a super, co super complicated concept. And if decentralization isn't used technologically to pres preserve the integrity of the application or the protocol then it's a more socio-political thing, right? Where you're rewarding people that contribute to the protocol uh, in, in tokens or whatever, uh, and, and therefore their ownership stake in, in whatever's getting built. So if they don't have a real good reason as to why they're adhering to some of these more uh, philosophical things that crypto and Web3 appreciates, then that's a red flag for me um, because it, it really takes a lot of thinking through um, you know, for example, I had mentioned to you, uh, 
you know, the big banks sort of buying up Uniswap and, you know, these Aave and everything like that. Is that really decentralized? Uh, you know, if JP Morgan and and Citi and and Goldman are all owning the DeFi protocols. I mean, that's hard to say, depending on how the governance works. You know, it could be that they really have minimal amount of say in, in how it operates, but they could also have a tremendous amount, right? And then you have to create forks, which is one of the great things about Web3. But then you have to, you know, everybody has to migrate over to that one and a new network has to, to form. So it's, it's kind of a pain. But, uh, but yeah, so not really understanding or, or appreciating the ethos of Web3 and crypto in general is a red, red flag for me. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about, I mean, your thoughts or maybe the, the, the venture capital uh, company that you work for, their thoughts uh, about NFTs, because this is starting to come out, you know, pretty big. And, it, you know, it kind of did come out of nowhere in the early kind of quarter of last year. And then it blew up. And, you know, a lot of these things have very arbitrary value, um, very yeah. ephemeral value. Yeah. Uh, it's all about the community <clears throat> and the vibes, man. And it's like, what what does what yeah. a real hard numbers guy think about all this stuff? Yeah. Um, so I think of when, I, when people talk about NFTs, most of the time they're thinking of like apes, right? Uh, but I, when I think of NFTs, I just think of uh, a digital file that lives on the blockchain, right? Something that can be owned and lives there. It's immutable. Um, so I have a little bit different of a framework for understanding uh, NFTs and how they could potentially, you know, op- interoperate with different blockchains and with different applications in the future. Um, but in terms of NFTs, as we understand them, you know, they represent culture or some community. I think it's going to, a lot of them are going to die off. I think it's really hard to get a community around uh, the price of a token. Um, you know, there's been some communities that have really followed through with uh, you know things that they're building and events and all that. But ultimately, the most fun I have with NFTs is with ones that are inter- interoperable. So think of loot, right? Loot is super. You know, the, the amount of composability and offshoots that people made from loot uh, is is incredibly exciting. I think. CC or C0 is an exciting concept. Um, the value accrual, I think, is still up in the air. But the idea that people can take and mix and match different NFTs and communities and they can evolve, right? Generative art, I think those are exciting. But otherwise, I think it's pretty frothy, uh, the NFTs as profile pictures, as communities space. It's definitely not accessible to your average person. You know, it, it's, it's uh, you know, like I think... Lil Nouns DAO is exciting, right? Instead of having one being minted every day that gets minted every 15 minutes and it has the same sort of ideals as Nouns DAO is, uh, but without having to pay a couple hundred grand for for, for a noun. Um, so I think people need to figure out a way to to become a little bit more inclusive with uh, NFTs as culture and and how that integrates to the existing business model, like with music, for example. You know, I don't have a tremendous framework for understanding how music NFTs unbundle the entire existing agent, you know, legal structure that artists traditionally try to get and, you know, bundling that all up in an NFT and issuing it to a hundred of your most loyal followers. Um, I, I get that. But in terms of the differential between how it currently works and, uh, you know, that new business model, I'm a little uncertain about. But there is a real problem, obviously, in music, right? You know, so anybody trying to help, I think, is fantastic. It's just uh, 
you know, using NFTs as a new monetization tool for them in particular and creators, um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I think we're still in uh, the colored coin days of uh, NFTs. You know, colored coins was one of the very first altcoins, you know, way back. Yeah. Uh, and no one's going to be interested about that now. But, you know, NFT 2.0 or 3.0, I think is going to be very exciting. And we've gotten a chance to see just a glimpse of it uh, through different guests that have come on the podcast before, like Halsey Miner, the founder of CNET, came on here to talk about Vivid Labs and how they're using NFTs like data buckets. So it yeah. has nothing to do with art, but it can be any media or any combination of media or access to live streams. And that's kind of interesting. And then there's uh, AI personalities that are being generated uh, over at Aletheia. And, you know, it, it's essentially like a living NFT avatar, which like combines AI, metaverse and NFTs all together. That's super next generation. So when that becomes mainstream, how are the current NFT communities going to be? Are you still going to be hanging out over there? Um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see yeah. where that sector goes, but enough on NFTs. Um, my, my personal favorite sector is Web3. And, yeah. you know, I, we could have this conversation go on for two hours, but we're approaching our time limit. And I want to squeeze this one in here before we get to our closing. Where do you see Web3 in five years? And what is like the grand vision of Web3 to you? Yeah, I th so for me, it's sort of related to my view on blockchain and NFTs and everything in general. People don't notice that they're using it. It just allows us to do things better and more efficient than we had done prior. So, you know, for example, when I think of the metaverse, um, I actually don't think of an AR, VR type world. I actually think of a more fluid internet experience and a metaverse, you know, uh, an actual metaverse with avatars and everything like that is an extension of it. So, you know, we have all of our things in a wallet, which I think is a, a killer app. You know, we have our medical data, we have, you know, our financials and everything. We're able to more easily move around the internet from application to application. And we can then dictate whether or not we want to share our information with those applications. So I think it's, it's empowering from an ownership perspective. And I think people are going to much more, uh, you know, have a lot more appreciation for that once it's introduced to them. Um, and then the other thing is the ability to be composable. So I think people are going to be uh, inventing some pretty cool stuff by, you know, taking ex existing communities or existing assets and being able to use them somewhere else uh, or in another ecosystem. So I think ultimately people are just going to not realize that, oh, you know, I'm on blockchain, you know, I'm on this blockchain or that blockchain. People are going to know about that. It's just they're able to now do things more seamlessly um, and they're able to do things they couldn't do before. So that's where I see it in, in five years. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, man, Brett, this has been awesome uh, bringing you on the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, in, in closing, we've just got a couple of questions that we like to ask everybody that comes on the show. But first one's kind of a, a softball here. Uh, out of all the people that you've kind of interacted with here in the crypto university or the crypto universe, I should say, yeah. uh, who, who's been most impactful for you as, as somebody who's challenged you academically or yeah. uh, philosophically, anything like that? Yeah, so I if I if you wouldn't mind, uh, I give two people. One person Please. I've never met. The other one I'm I'm very very close with. Um, one is Vitalik. Uh, I think he's an incredibly deep thinker. I think he's reasonable and rational. Um, I, I think he's. I, I think having him in Ethereum is is tremendous for the space. Um, 
And then on the more personal side, uh, my professor Omid uh, Malikan at uh, Columbia, he uh, he's a tremendous, uh, you know, he's he's very reasonable, right? He understands the flaws with crypto and Web3. He understands the value in it, and he's very open-minded. And I always very much get along with people that are open-minded and free to debate. And, and um, you know, he teaches the, the, the MBA course at Columbia. So um, he was somebody that I would say had the, you know, the biggest impact on me. And if this was one of the first interviews that, uh, or first podcast that anybody kind of was uh, listening to in relation to crypto, right? They're like, oh, I'm just going to check this podcast out, learn about crypto. What would you tell those kind of people? Uh, go play, you know, figure out how to sign up a wallet. It's super, you know, there's a million resources I can show you exactly how to do it. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to take the security of your keys too seriously at first, right? You know, just throw, you know, 50 bucks on there and just start playing, you know, plan a cheap, Ethereum's cheap to transact on now, or, you know, you can go on Solana or, or any of the, uh, these other very cheap chains and just start moving money around, just start playing. Uh, it'll allow you to understand how everything's interconnected. You can see, you know, what things are, are frustrating you, what things are, are cool to you. Um, and then you can see how, you know, these different parts all work together. Uh, so my biggest advice, piece of advice would be go play with it. You know, just set up a wallet, set up a Coinbase account, throw 50 bucks on chain and, and start moving it around. I think that's a really good uh, kind of note to end it on. Some people take, you know, this, you know, too seriously. And they're like, oh, it's so scary. I don't want to put, you know, I don't want to get involved because I don't understand it. I don't want to put all my money at risk, but you could start small. You could start slow and build your way up. Yeah. Just, just start small, play around, you know, again, you know, you can throw it on Solana, you know, it costs you nothing really to move money around. Um, and, and, you know, you have a good time, buy an NFT, see what it does, join the community, <laughs> Uh, you know, immerse yourself a little bit in that and then you'll suddenly, you know, you'll start veering in different directions. So that's, that's what I would say to do. Brilliant. Well, Brett, we really enjoyed our time with you today. Uh, I know everyone at home listening did as well. Uh, Interplay VC, we're going to keep our eyes out for them in the news to see what big companies you guys invest in next. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you guys. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. 
So go to trylifemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.